Hello and welcome to the monthly BV Magazine podcast, your genuine slice of rural Dorset life, July 2022, episode 2. I'm Jenny Devitt. And I'm Terry Bennett. And in this episode... Maggie Ollerinshaw tackles the random 19 questions and Philip Coward is our guest for July's Dorset Island Discs. And we discover the world of handmade glass with MC Sharp. Labour's Pat Osborne laments the undermining of rights to peaceful protest. The Green Party's Ken Huggins gives his view of Boris Johnson, written before the PM's recent resignation. North Dorset Lib Dems' Mike Chapman reflects on recent political events in Westminster, with oblique references to the Second Amendment of the US Constitution. And from Roger Guttridge, something of the history of Blandford Hospital and the story of the sozzled servant. Maggie Ollerinshaw, the acclaimed British actress, takes on the random 19 questions, an interview by Laura Hitchcock. Maggie Ollerinshaw, a proud Mancunian, now resident in Stalbridge, is perhaps most famous for playing comedic northerners, particularly in the sitcoms Last of the Summer Wine and Open All Hours, and Still Open All Hours. She has also appeared in various other television roles, such as Holby City, Doctors, Heartbeat and Midsummer Murders, but off-screen has demonstrated a versatile ability, playing intense American leads in Who's Afraid of Virginia Woolf and a streetcar named Desire, as well as Shakespearean roles in The Merry Wives and King John. In addition, she has toured internationally in her own show, Sincerely Yours, a tribute to singing legend Vera Lynn. What's your relationship with the Blackmore Vale, the North Dorset area, not the magazine? It all began with my husband, who's actor Jeff Leasley, and his son Sam, who is autistic. When we got together in the early 2000s, Sam was at the Forum School in Shillingston. Jeff lived in Sussex, I was in London, and we were looking for a home together. We instinctively headed west, and first of all, we came across Froome. We bought a house there in 2002, but we couldn't find the house we really wanted. In 2016, we finally found the house of our dreams and moved to lovely April Cottage in Stalbridge, opposite the church. It's so quintessentially English. What was the last song you sang out loud in your car? It was Make Me an Angel from Montgomery. It's a country song. Bonnie Raitt is the singer most associated with it. She didn't write it, but was a great friend of John Prine, who did. My musical taste is quite eclectic. I certainly wouldn't call myself a country and western girl. But the lyrics to this are just fantastic. It's like a play. The character is a middle-aged woman who feels older than she is, and she wants to get away from her life and where she lives, which is Montgomery, Alabama. It's wonderful. I discovered it when BBC Four ran a repeat of an old concert from the 80s when Bonnie Raitt was over here doing a tour. It was at the Shepherd's Bush Empire, I think. This was one of the songs she played, and I just thought, that's amazing. What was the last movie you watched and would you recommend it? It was a film called Serrano, based on Serrano de Bergerac. It stars Peter Dinklage, the small actor people will know from Game of Thrones. The original story is that Serrano has this enormous nose. He's in love with a beautiful woman, but it's all hopeless. And instead, she falls in love with a very handsome man. Serrano has a wonderful way with words, however and he ends up writing The Handsome Man's Love Letters to Roxanne. Brilliantly, instead of using Serrano's enormous ugly nose, the film uses Peter's height. So clever. It's sumptuous to look at, too. It's a musical, 
but I would hesitate to describe it as one because the song interludes are so integrated into the narrative you almost don't notice. The other thing I love is the message, especially in this age of celebrity. The story emphasizes that it isn't what you look like that's important. It really isn't. And it's a message that needs saying over and over. Your favourite quote, movie, book or inspirational, we won't judge, but would like to know why. It's by John Guare, the American playwright. He was once asked to go to his old college to talk to leaving students. He said, and I'm paraphrasing, The world doesn't need more lawyers and bankers. We need dreamers. We need people with imagination. Please don't get up in the morning and hate your life and hate what you do. It's Friday night. You have the house to yourself and no work is allowed. What are you going to do? Okay, I'm going to cook myself something. Some veggie pasta, maybe. Have a nice glass of red wine and watch a Bette Davis movie or maybe Joan Crawford. But something black and white, certainly. What is your comfort meal? Egg and chips. Double egg and chips with a little Heinz ketchup. What would you like to tell 15-year-old you? Life will get better. What shop can you never pass by? (laughs) No such shop exists. What book did you read last year that stayed with you and what made you love it? Small Island by Andrea Levy. I was made aware of the book by watching an episode of Alan Yentob's Imagine series in which he interviewed her. I didn't know anything about her at all, but she sounded such an interesting woman, and this book in particular. I absolutely loved it. It just gave me a totally different perspective on my own country. Favourite crisp flavour? Cheese and onion. And the best biscuit for dunking? Well, I don't dunk. Why spoil a good biscuit and why spoil a good cup of tea? Cats or dogs? Dogs. Proper dogs. Big dogs, not handbags. We can't have one due to our lifestyle and our place in London is three floors up with no outside space. But we always invite our friends' dogs to stay. We're very dog-friendly. What are your top three most visited favourite websites, excluding social media and the BBC News? Guardian, the IMDb, Manchester City. I'm a big football fan. I come from Manchester and have supported them since I was yay high. What's your most annoying trait? Well, I say it's interrupting people. My husband says it's impatience. I guess it's probably the same thing. Who's your celebrity crush? Idris Elba. I was at a busy function at the BBC once and he entered the room. It was quite a large room. He came in on the far side and suddenly you saw virtually everybody notice him. He's one of those people who just has an aura. The only other person I saw with the same effect was George Clooney. I wasn't even that close to him. It was a Q&A after a film in a big cinema in the West End and he was right down on the stage and I was way up in the circle. But again, even from up there, I could feel it. So charismatic. What was the last gift you gave someone? It's a slight cheat. It's for my husband's birthday next week, so it's not been given yet. But I know it'll be perfect. There's a wonderful traditional barber in Curzon Street in London. I'm sending him for one of those superior shaves with hot towels. The full works. How would you like to be remembered? Well, I should probably say, as a really good friend, someone you could rely on, having had a useful life. But that all sounds terribly worthy. I think I'd actually just like to be remembered as someone who was good fun to be with. What in life is frankly a mystery to you? I have two answers. Am I allowed to be political? My instinctive response is simply people who voted for Brexit and all the Tories. 
But if you prefer, my non-political answer is golf. Is that any less controversial? You have the power to pass one law tomorrow, uncontested. What would you do? Universal income. It would solve so many problems at a stroke and obviously would save money. Isn't it crazy that it's just not happening? July's castaway in Dorset Island Discs is Philip Coward. I grew up in Mere, right across the road from our family's brushmaking business, which was started by my grandfather and great-uncle in 1922. I always had an interest in building things and in anything mechanical. My father was an engineer and I followed in his footsteps, gaining a degree in mechanical engineering from Brunel University in 1974. I married Pammy just after graduating and joined the family company a few months later, after failing to obtain a work permit for the USA. I managed the production at Hillbrush, then the Hillbrush Company, for several years before taking over management of the company. Five years ago, we built a new factory on the western side of Mir, which enabled the company to address sustainability issues and be far more efficient. I handed over running of the company to my son Charlie and nephew Andy, and I am now chairman. This year the company is celebrating its 100th anniversary, which is a testimony to the amazing employees past and present. Over the years I have been involved in our industry manufacturer associations, and I am still a board member of the European Brush Manufacturers Federation, based in the Netherlands. Our company has held a royal warrant to HM the Queen for more than 40 years, and last year I became honorary treasurer of the Royal Warrant Holders Association. I sit on the executive committee and I am a trustee of its charity fund. I have always been interested in the town where our business is located and I am now in my 46th year as a mere town councillor, which may be a record. Since passing on the day-to-day running of the company, I naturally have more time to devote to my interests outside of brush making, including maintaining the farm where we live, boating in Poole Harbour and travelling. As well as Charlie, we have a daughter Claire, who lives not far away, and four grandchildren, who we obviously love seeing regularly. And so to Philip's eight music choices, along with how and why they stuck in his life. First off, the Beatles' song, We Can Work It Out. I had to have a Beatles song. They were so influential during my school days, and their songs still stand the test of time. Who would have thought that Paul McCartney would have headlined at Glastonbury at the age of 80? Jimi Hendrix's All Along the Watchtower. I am a great Hendrix fan. I think he was the best guitarist that I have ever seen live. I just wish that I could have played as well as him. A Whiter Shade of Pale by Procol Harum. This has to be one of the most amazing pop records ever produced and brings back so many memories of my later school days. Chicago's 25 or 6 to 4. Just a great record released when I was at university. Mozart's Laudate Dominum. But specifically performed by the Cherbourne Chamber Choir with my wife Pammy as soloist. If I had this on my desert island, I could listen to her amazing voice and it would make me determined to escape. The Allegretto from Sibelius's Symphony No. 2 in D, Opus 43. Quite simply, this is a magical piece of music and I love Sibelius. The Piano Concerto No. 2 in C minor, Opus 18, The Allegro Scherzando by Rachmaninoff. This is such a moving piece of music, and one which I would never tire of on the island. If you could see me now, the script. This record would make me dance around the island. 
And if the waves were to wash all your records away, but you had time to save just one, which would it be? It would have to be the Laudate Dominum. And your book? I would be bored rereading any of my favourite novels, and instead I would like a complete DIY manual by Reader's Digest. Although I am very practical, there is always another skill to learn which might help me to escape from the island. And finally, your luxury. For my luxury, I would like to have a toolbox, but I suspect that's not allowed. So I would like to ask for my choice of pillows, so that I could at least have a good night's sleep. The Alchemy of the Glassblower by Edwina Baines In her studio in a converted cowshed at Gold Hill Farm, Child Oakford, MC Sharp pursues the art of glassblowing. Invented by Syrian craftsmen in the first century BC, blown vessels for everyday use were produced and exported to all parts of the Roman Empire. By the Middle Ages, Venice had become a major centre for glassmaking and, for fear of fire in the city, production moved to the island of Murano. Venetian glassmakers developed secret recipes and methods for making glass, and at one time the craftsmen were not allowed to leave the island in the Venetian lagoon for fear their methods would be lost. Revealing their trade secrets was punishable by death. Thankfully, no such rules apply now in MC studio. She was happy to demonstrate the techniques which have remained basically the same to the present day. Following a degree in glass from Farnham Art College, Emsey moved to London to work with both Adam Aronson Designs and Columbia Glassworks. Three years later, she left to work on Murano, the mecca of the glassblowing world. The maestro, or gaffer, was the chief glassblower, and Emsey was the only woman apprentice under his tutelage. Initially, she spoke no Italian and had to learn Venetian, a separate language from Italian. They use different words, she said. It's like learning English, then learning Geordie. Glassblowing takes years of practice and dedication to the maestro, as well as specialised tools and equipment. And a maestro's two assistants were known as the Servente and Serventino. Emsi learned her trade as the latter. I'd call it the slave. There were long days of tiring, repetitive work, said Emsi. In Italy, they're very traditional, very Venetian. They work on a high level of accuracy. Items have to match perfectly. But I don't want all my pieces to be the same. In Murano, the glass is made for show, something you'd put on display in a cabinet. I want mine to be functional, useful. I want people to feel the craft in each piece. Today, even on a cool morning, the studio is hot. Each piece starts life as molten glass in the furnace at around 1100 degrees centigrade. With the price of gas rising all the time, keeping the furnace at this constant temperature is a considerable and increasing cost. The furnace is fed with 24% lead crystal cullet. That's excess or broken crystal from the previous week's production, purchased from Dartington Glass in Devon. It's a form of recycling, was how Emsey termed it. I watched Emsey and her assistant Anne making several glasses, which were part of a larger commission of wine glasses, decanters and candle holders. The molten glass is gathered on the end of a hollow tube or blowing iron and inflated with a bubble. The vessel is shaped and formed by rolling on a smooth surface, often consisting of pads of damp newspaper or an applewood block. The block is a wooden tool used to smooth and shape the molten glass into a spherical shape. The blocks are kept soaked in water before use, creating a layer of steam as the glass is shaped. 
Emsi may also swing the arm and use gravity to make a longer shape if required. The stems and spun foot are each attached separately, with Anne helping to apply a separate fetch or bit of molten glass each time. A paddle is used to squeeze the foot between two applewood boards so that it's even. A punty or small metal rod is then attached to the bottom of the glass so that the other end can be fashioned. This leaves a small mark on the bottom of the glass which demonstrates that the item has been handmade. The tools of the glass blower are many and varied, each with specific names. Calipers are used to measure each glass for uniformity. A soffietta, a metal tube attached to a conical nozzle, is used to cool the glass before the next process. After the vessel has been removed from the blowpipe, the cone can be placed into the opening and used to further inflate it. Many of the tools originate from Venice. Emsi said hers will last a lifetime. It was fascinating to watch the two women working together in a seemingly effortless dance of adding, shaping, cutting and moulding. Emsi also makes decanters, exciting sculptures and lamp bases. She says, I don't plan things out completely. I have an idea of the colours and shapes, but I like the excitement of not knowing what's going to happen. All the colours behave in different ways. In around 40 seconds... Even though it's still around 800 degrees centigrade, the glass will cool down so much that you can't work with it. The longer you let it cool, the longer it'll take to heat back up. The traditional process does not always go to plan, and sometimes a crack appears when the article is removed from the rod. Often this can be removed when reheated in a second furnace, which is called the glory hole, where the rod is supported on a yoke. But sometimes the glass shatters and all is lost. If all goes well, a final furnace, or annealer, is used to cool the glass slowly, which keeps it from cracking. It was with a sense of satisfaction that I saw the beautiful finished article placed in the annealer, and we all heaved a sigh of relief. Emsi said, I absolutely love what I do. Although it's been a tough journey and I'm not going to get rich, I feel very privileged to be able to do it. I'd like to pass on my knowledge to the next generation – there are technical skills which need to be taught. I want my work to be both useful and functional. I want people to feel the craft in each piece. The process is like alchemy or an intricate dance. Hand-blown glass is generally thought to be more graceful than machine-made glass. This is preferable when drinking wine, not only for the way the glass balances in your hand, but because the glass enhances the wine, especially at the rim or the lip. A thin, smooth edge where your lips meet the glass is best while taking a sip. Seems like a good enough reason to keep this ancient art alive. And you can see Emsie's work on www.sharpglass.co.uk. She's open for commissions and has items for sale on her website. Politics. We noisily protest by Labourers Pat Osborne. Last month, I wrote about the inadequacy of the government's response to a cost-of-living crisis caused largely by 12 years of Tory economic policy, designed to deliver super-profits for millionaires at the expense of ordinary working people. On the 18th of June, I joined tens of thousands of trade unionists from up and down the country at the TUC's march and rally in London to demand better. Despite a justifiable underlying anger towards a government that is clearly letting us down, the protest was conducted peacefully and in a carnival-like atmosphere, 
Protesters showed their solidarity with other working people devastated by the cost of living crisis by adding to a soundscape of drums, whistles, music and chants as we marched two miles from Portland Place to Parliament Square. Just ten days later, the Police, Crime, Sentencing and Courts Act came into effect, effectively banning noisy protest. Within ten hours, anti-Brexit protester Steve Bray was the Act's first scop when police swooped to confiscate his speakers. Whether or not we agree with Mr Bray's King Canute-like position on Brexit is besides the point. Peaceful protest is a cornerstone of any liberal democracy, and Mr Bray should have the right to engage in it. It is worrying, therefore, though entirely foreseeable, that the police should move so quickly to enforce Pretty Patel's hardline anti-protest laws in such a heavy-handed way. With the promise of a summer of discontent ahead of us, it is likely that these draconian powers and other anti-trade union instruments will be exercised repeatedly in order to mute a growing choir of dissenting voices. By autumn, this could reveal a country with more in common with Putin's autocratic Russia than the liberal democracies of Western Europe. A Personal Reckoning by North Dorset Green Party's Ken Huggins Boris Johnson has just claimed that his government's record is exceptional. He's never spoken a truer word. He blames the crushing Tory defeats in the Wakefield and tiverton Honiton by-elections on the media for focusing more on his personal conduct than on his policies. That he considers his personal conduct to be of no consequence says it all. There's been plenty of media focus on his policies, many of which do not stand up to close scrutiny. And whilst government spokespeople take every opportunity to remind us of the speed of the vaccine rollout, they deliberately ignore the massive failings elsewhere in dealing with the COVID pandemic. For example, the government claim that a protective ring had been thrown around care homes. Not true. My mother caught COVID in Yeovil Hospital, but was promptly discharged right back into her care home. Tens of thousands of vulnerable care home residents caught COVID and died. Then there was the debacle of PPE procurement, with eye-watering profits, commissions being paid without proper scrutiny, and billions spent on unusable items. Wasted taxpayers' money that could have been profitably used to increase supplies of renewable energy and reduce energy consumption by insulating homes. For us to have such a Prime Minister at this time is more than just an embarrassment, it's a disaster. With the enormity and urgency of the environmental crisis ever more apparent, now more than ever we need strong, compassionate and caring leadership with recognition that we're all in the same boat. Accepting that everyone has to be taken care of regardless of which school they went to or how wealthy they may be. For any Conservatives pondering their next steps, as an ex-Conservative voter myself, I can confirm the warm welcome that awaits in the Green Party. And that article was written before Boris Johnson's resignation. The World of Trade Unions Has Changed by North Dorset Lib Dems' Mike Chapman The Second Amendment to the US Constitution dates from 1791. It was about preventing central government wielding excessive power, people might bear arms, to be equipped to stop those in authority from exceeding themselves. Fortunately, we have developed the more modern approach, with less collateral damage, of the ballot box plus a wholly independent judiciary. This government is overreaching, overreacting and bullying. What mandate is there for tearing up the Northern Ireland Protocol? 
the migrant export deal with Rwanda, for acknowledging the European Court of Human Rights only when convenient, and for their mission to dumb down and commercialise the BBC. What is to be done with a government whose response to the crisis on the railways has been a resounding bring it on if you are hard enough? It is earnestly to be hoped that our education system, the very essence, and already undervalued, of our future prosperity, does not end up in a similar standoff. These strikes are ridiculous and wholly contrary to individual, corporate and societal best interests. The best performing enterprises work as partnerships, together for mutual benefit, us versus them, theory X, more stick than carrot, and other such confrontational practices went out with the arc. Trade union membership has become a marginal factor outside the public sector. Employee share ownership is growing strongly. Today, modern organisational imperatives and internal cultures are directed towards balancing the interests of all stakeholders. Boards are supported by non-executives specifically there to find balanced positions. Employee engagement in continuous improvement is becoming the norm. I note our campaign in Tiverton and Honiton was dubbed the coming of the yellow peril. If that means old orders, school ties and outdated self-centred attitudes left and right are under threat from people with the passion, standards, experience and up-to-date understandings to make a better fist of it, then caveat Boris. Let Boris and all who ride with him beware. Now is a good time to join in, to bring your own understanding to bear, to make your own positive, constructive voice be heard. Thank goodness we don't have the Second Amendment here. Local History Blandford Hospital and the Case of the Sozzled Servant by Roger Guttridge Working out exactly what's what in the ancient and modern pictures of Blandford Hospital takes a bit of doing. So much has changed in 130 years or so. The hospital's history dates back to 1883, when the Honourable Miss Portman paid for the construction of a cottage hospital adjoining the Corner Coffee House near the junction of Salisbury Road and Whitecliffe Mill Street. The first patient was reputedly a man injured in a wagon accident at Taron Hinton in March 1883. It became known as the Nurse House, but only catered for outpatients, the more seriously ill or injured being sent to bigger hospitals at Dorchester, Weymouth, Bournemouth or Bath. The Portmans of Brownston House then financed the present hospital, which was officially opened on the 15th of December 1888. This hospital, declared Viscountess Portman and the Honourable L.E. Portman, is principally intended for the necessitous poor of Blandford and those parishes in the neighbourhood which have no institution of the kind within easy reach of them. Such patients are admitted free of charge. In her diary, Julietta Forrester, wife of Lord Portman's agent, noted that one of the first patients was an Iwanminster woman whose incapacity occurred in rather laughable circumstances. In his will, the squire of Iwan, Lord Wolverton, left instructions for everyone in his service to receive a year's wages. Julietta believed this sweeping bequest was a clerical error by Lord Wolverton's legal people, which cost his estate the then princely sum of £8,000. Apparently, one of the servants spent and drank some of her money, went upstairs to bed, but then decided she needed another drop. She stumbled and, falling from the top of the stairs to the bottom, broke her leg, says Julietta. 
The mishap earned the Sozzle servant the dubious honour of being one of the first two patients at the new Blandford Cottage Hospital. The other first patient was a man, complaint unknown. The Portmans continued to pay the wages of the matron and nurses for many years. And if you want to see the photographs that accompany that article, you'll need to look at the magazine online. A Right Religious Racket, Part 2, by Roger Guttridge Have you heard the one about the fat old woman at the toll bridge? Not my words, but those of Mrs E. Pulteney, when describing the impact of a major storm which swept across southern England in March 1818. Writing from Lymington to Miss Dorothea Rackett, daughter of the rector of Spettisbury and Charlton Marshall, Mrs Pulteney speaks of the late tremendous weather and complains that our house has been partly blown down, though without any serious injury to the inhabitants. She then tells the comical tale of the fat old woman at the toll bridge, who found herself knee-deep in flood water and unable to walk to safety. The woman's son tried to carry her to a neighbour's house, but when the task proved too challenging, he set her down in the water to get assistance. It appears the fat old woman survived, but was not the only one in trouble. They had six pigs in the house, which in the darkness they could not attempt to rescue, Mrs Pulteney adds. But in the morning, great was their surprise in finding them all alive and floating in the water. Mrs Pulteney's letter is among more than 50 years' worth of correspondence in the Thomas Rackett Papers, first published by the Dorset Record Society in 1965 and now reprinted with additions in hardback. Other topics referred to in the letters range from Dorset land and grain prices to the freezing winter of 1829-30, from an 1833 flu epidemic at Blamford and Charlton Marshall to, perhaps most curiously, a terrible depreciation in the value of books in 1830 and the related sale of many private libraries. In 1808, the Reverend Thomas Rackett wrote to a friend describing a disastrous fire at John Nichols' Fleet Street printing office and warehouses, which destroyed, among other things, the proofs of most of the second edition of Hutchins' History of Dorset, as well as the whole impression of Nichols' own four-volume History of Leicestershire. Nichols was only insured for a small amount, so his loss was very considerable. Many letters reflect Rackett's lifelong passions for all things historical and scientific. In 1815-16, Starahead owner Sir Richard Hoare kept Rackett informed of his charting of ancient sites in Dorset and South Wiltshire. In one letter, he announced his plans to trace the Roman road from Serum to Woodyates and thence to Badbury Rings, where he intended to examine the camp to see if our survey is correct. At Badbury Rings, he saw two diverging causeways, one heading for Dorchester, the other appearing to head towards Wareham. This puzzled him, as there was no evidence of a Roman road reaching Wareham. He also noted a great portion of another via, leading from Hamworthy towards Vindigladia, by which he probably meant Wimborne or Badbury Rings, and on to Gussage Cow Down. Sir Richard was on the money with this speculation. We now know that the Romans built a road from their port at Hamworthy to Lake Gates, Wimborne, where they set up their 40-acre base camp for the conquest of southwest England. Another road led from Lake Gates to Babbury Rings, where it split into three routes, one leading to Dorchester, 
the Roman de Noveria, another into North Dorset, and a third to Old Serum. Being a wealthy antiquarian, Sir Richard employed his own surveyor, Mr Crocker, to record details of Badbury Rings, Hambledon Hill, Hod Hill, Maiden Castle, and other sites. He described Hambledon, which he called Hamilton, as one of the grandest earthworks I ever beheld. In 1832, a parishioner's discovery of ancient Greek coins in a field at Charlton Marshall prompted Rackett to make further inquiries in the general area. Within six months, he had collected more than 100 coins from kings of Syria, Macedon, Bithynia, Sirmium and Egypt, and from states and colonies of Antioch, Carthage, Cos, Marmartini, Regium, Syracuse, Neapolis, etc. Rackett also refers to 70 or 80 silver coins found at Oxford Fitzpain some years earlier. In a report to Henry Ellis, Secretary of the Society of Antiquities, he says coins plus the glass beads and gold ornaments found in Dorset barrows suggested commercial intercourse between the local Britons and people from the east, and perhaps even that a colony was formed in this part of the island. Copies of the Thomas Rackett papers are available in person from the Dorset History Centre or by post for £14.95 plus £2 postage and packing. And that's the end of the BV Magazine podcast for July 2022, Episode 2. Join us again next week for Episode 3. So it's goodbye from me, Terry Bennett. And goodbye from me, Jenny Devitt.